the servant king. It was Passover, the time when God's people remembered how God had rescued them from being slaves in Egypt. Every year, they killed a lamb and ate it. The lamb died instead of us, they would say. But this Passover, God was getting ready for an even greater rescue. Jesus and his friends were having the Passover meal together in an upstairs room. But Jesus' friends were arguing. What about? <laughs> they were arguing about stinky feet. Stinky feet? Yes, that's right. Stinky feet. Now, the thing about feet back then was that people didn't wear shoes. They only wore sandals, which might not sound unusual, except that the streets in those days were dirty. And I don't mean just dusty dirty. I mean really stinky dirty, with all those cows and horses everywhere. Oh, you can imagine the stuff on the street that ended up on their feet. So anyway, someone had to wash away the dirt. But it was a dreadful job. Who on earth would ever dream of volunteering to do it? Only the lowliest servant. I am not the servant, Peter said. Nor am I, said Matthew. Quietly, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, picked up a basin of water, knelt down and started to wash his friend's feet. You can't, Peter said. He didn't understand about Jesus being the servant king. If you don't let me wash away the dirt, Peter, Jesus said, you can't be close to me. Jesus knew that what people needed most was to be clean on the inside. All the dirt on their feet was nothing compared to the sin inside their hearts. Then wash me, Lord, Peter said, tears filling his eyes. All of me. One by one, Jesus washed everyone's feet. I am doing this because I love you, Jesus explained. Do this for each other. Now, one of Jesus' friends had made a bad plan. No one else knew what the bad plan was, but Jesus knew. And so did Judas. Judas was going to help the leaders capture Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Go on, Judas, Jesus said. And Judas got up from the meal, left the room, and walked out into the night. Then Jesus picked up some bread and broke it. He gave it to his friends. He picked up a cup of wine and thanked God for it. He poured it out and shared it. My body is like this bread. It will break, Jesus told them. This cup of wine is like my blood. It will pour out. But this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will heal. Just as the Passover lamb died, so now I will die instead of you. My blood will wash away all of your sins. 
and you'll be clean on the inside, in your hearts. So whenever you eat and drink, remember, Jesus said, I've rescued you. Jesus knew it was nearly time for him to leave the world and to go back to God. I won't be with you long, he said. You are going to be very sad, but God's helper will come, and then you'll be filled up with a forever happiness that won't ever leave. So don't be afraid. You're my friends, and I love you. Then they sang their favourite song and walked up to their favourite place, an olive garden. Good morning. And good morning to those of you who are online. We're glad that you can join us in that way and, and a special welcome to you in F3. Diane and I would normally be down there with you, but uh, we're up here with the folks in F1, so we're just uh, glad to have you with us. God bless you all. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, John 13. John 13 is going to tell us the story that we just watched. Although the story also had a little commentary from the Gospel of Luke. John 13. And before I read from there, I want to read a verse from the end of Isaiah because I think it paints a picture for us of what we're going to see today in John 13. Uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So he starts off by saying, what is there that you really could do that I need? What is there that if you were to do it in a form of service to me, that I somehow couldn't do it myself? I mean... He made us, and he made anything that we could possibly use to serve him. And so he wants us to get a proper perspective that, that what he's going to show us today in Jesus' life and what he's going to call us to isn't fundamentally because he needs it. It's, it's because it accomplishes a purpose that he wants. Let's look at part of that purpose, it's in the next verse. He says, or the rest of verse two, he says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Let me read that again. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble, contrite of spirit and who tremble, trembles at my word. And I think what we're gonna see in Jesus is someone like that. Now, Jesus can't be contrite of spirit because contrite means that you're experiencing grief for your sin. You, there's a sorrow and a sense of loss at what about you needs to change. And there wasn't anything about Jesus that needed to change, but that those other two qualities, the 
humble, and the trembling at his father's word. Those are marked by Jesus, and we're going to see them here. Uh, Today in chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 17 over the next half hour. And uh, we're going to see in Jesus not only a picture of humility, but a picture of love. And the humility that we see in him is not just because he stoops to wash his disciples' feet. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. I'm going to stop there. We'll go on with it in just a moment, but I want us to just see something there. Before it says anything else, before it goes into Jesus' bending down to uh, fill a basin with water or taking off his upper garments and putting a towel around his waist. Before he does any of that, the first thing that we see is Jesus was aware that his hour had come. The reason I think that's important is it stands out to us that this is the Son of God, for goodness sake. This is the Lord. And yet what this is telling us in the first verse is Jesus was under orders. He was aware he was under orders. He was aware his his time had come. This needs to be seen really clearly. We see it there in verse uh, 1, Jesus knowing his hour had come. But let's look at a couple of other examples where Jesus knows this or sees this that shows that he's really on the Father's timetable, not his own. 13.1 says Jesus knew his hour had come. John 13.3 says Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Um, And by the way, it says that in the context of Jesus getting ready to be crucified. Interesting, I think if I was getting ready to be crucified, I wouldn't think that things had all been put in my hand. But in God's economy, even Jesus being prepared to be crucified was part of all things being put into his hand. And the fact that Jesus knew that means that everything that's going to follow is a picture of the fact that he was yielded to the Father. Let's look at some other places where it says the same thing. Chapter 13, verse 11, which we'll get to shortly, says uh, he knew the one who was betraying him. Remember, he's, he's having a meal with this man, and he's getting ready to wash his feet. If I knew you were getting ready to betray me, I think I would skip you. But Jesus doesn't. Or if we went on after their meal is finished and they cross the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, we would read in 18 and verse 4, Jesus therefore knowing all the things that were coming upon him. Or if we went to the cross in chapter 19, we would read, after this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. That's saying the reason he did it was so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I don't think it was because he thought it would satisfy his thirst. It was because he was so yielded to the Father and to his word that he had already surrendered himself. The decisions had long been made before. 
So Jesus was living a life of yieldedness. And the reason I think this is important is if we just look at this washing of the feet as an act in and of itself, we might be tempted to look at it as like a ceremony, foot washing. You know, we might look at it that way, and I don't think that's the way it's meant to be. I'm not saying there's anything the matter with a ceremony of foot washing as long as the ceremony is actually picturing what this was really about. I think what it was really about was like, uh, there's a verse that I used to think came to my mind often, but when I'm around Rich Brito, I hear it every time I'm with Rich, and he can't help it. It just comes out of it. I think it'll end up being on his tombstone unless the Lord comes back first. Uh, But it's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, right after declaring the gospel, right after saying, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. It's just gotten through declaring the free offer of eternal life through faith in Christ. But the very next verse shows that he didn't just save us to save us, because verse 10, Rich Brito's tombstone, I haven't told Rich that yet. I need, if, you're, if you're here, Rich, I'm sorry. I, I'm not making any prophecy here, but I'll put it on there. We are his work... I know, I'll go first. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus is just walking in the good works his Father has already prepared beforehand. The washing of the feet is not like that Jesus has a, check, a checklist in his, in his robe that he has to pull out and say, now what's one of the other things I have to do before I'm crucified? It's an outpouring of a yieldingness to the Father, but I want us to see that that is part of just, not only was he aware of it in the context that we just read, 13 and, and 14 and, and 18 and 19, but look at him throughout this book. Throughout the book of John, we see the same idea, the same idea of Jesus' yieldedness. And I think this is really important because to me, it's, it's a it's the power that frees a person to be prepared and available to do what Jesus would have them do. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. My hour has not yet come, Jesus said, talking to his mother. Why would he say that? Because he knew he was on orders. He knew his life was not dictated by him. Or chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life and goes on to say, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus was given. He was sent. He was on orders. Or chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' delight, his fullness, is to fulfill the Father's purpose. Look at chapter 5 and verse 19. The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. What a remarkable amount of dependency. This is the very Son of God who would never do anything wrong. But it's not about not doing wrong. It's that 
He only does what he sees the Father doing. Look at chapter 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's, he's not making any claims about himself. He's just saying, I'm here for the Father's purpose, which we're going to see fits right into this idea of the foot washing. Look at chapter 5 and verse 36, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. He sees that's his role. Look at chapter 6, verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Or 8.26, he who sent me is true, and the things I heard from him, these I speak. That is, whatever is coming out of my mouth is not my own teaching. It's what I've been told to say. Or 8.28, I do nothing on my own initiative. I speak these things as the Father taught me. See, I think sometimes when we think of the Christian life and we think of obeying the Lord, it feels burdensome to us. And I think it's usually because we're, we're picking up the wrong log. I think we're picking up something that he hasn't given us to do. I think that's why a really godly man I once knew, who's with the Lord now, used to sign all of his letters resting in his easy yoke. Because he was old enough and wise enough in the Lord to find out that Really understanding the Lord yields an easy yoke. I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking that this is my job, with my wife or with my kids or, or in my work of serving him in some other capacity, sometimes it just feels way too big, and that ought to be a warning to us. There, there is an easy yoke that's intended for what he's going to tell us to do. In all of these passages, even though he's the son, even though he's our master, even though he's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, even though to see him is to see the father, he sees his, father as, his job as trusting the father and just walking forward in the next thing God's given him to do. His, his life is not his own. It's like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse, six, verse 15 says... Um, he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In other words, what was true of Jesus, that he didn't live for himself, is actually true for every person who's a Christian. That we're actually to live, and we'll see this in this, the rest of the passage, for his purpose. Let's go back to verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, I do think it's important to recognize as we see the rest of this chapter unfold, it's important for us to see that John emphasizes his love twice. Remember, this is the, this is the apostle who identified himself as he was the one whom Jesus loved. He's not saying that because I'm loved most. It's because he was just so constantly aware of how loved he was. That to him, it, his name didn't mean much. What mattered to him is, man, I'm loved. And because he was so loved, he's able to see that what Jesus got ready to do right now is not merely about humility. 
And by the way, if we lose this, we'll lose everything. If we think that the Christian life is fundamentally about be humble enough to obey what God's got for you to do, I feel sorry for you. I remember a lady, I told this to a Sunday uh, BTC class. I've been here 29 years, I still call it Sunday school. Um, I, I told this to a class just a couple of months ago that I remember about 35 years ago in Houston, I was on my way into church where my office was, and as I walked in, I saw a, a small classroom with a lady there with glue and scissors and green stuff and paper and all this other stuff. And, and normally when I see crafts, my stomach goes into knots. I, I just, I am just a non-crafter. And, and Sister Ange is to blame. Sister Ange was my nursery school teacher and she gave me an F in art and I haven't taken art since. And so anytime I'm around crafts, I, I get queasy. So this lady, as I walk in, I see her doing something, and I said, hey, what you doing? Making wreaths for the sanctuary. <laughs> that was how she said it. And I don't know what made me ask this next thing. I wasn't trying to be mean or anything. I just said, why? She said, because nobody else will. Hey, folks, I've been there. Not making wreaths, but I've been there where I've done something because nobody else will. And I think that when that's my attitude, I've received my reward in full. Because John doesn't just describe his obedience. He doesn't just describe his humility. Look at what he says at the end of the verse and let that be in, the, in our minds as we read the rest of it. Having loved his own who were in the world... He didn't have to say that. He's already made that plain. But in order so that we don't miss it, he says it again. He loved them to the end, meaning what he's getting ready to do is all out of love. It's humility shaped by love, empowered by love. And by the time we get to the end of this passage, we'll see how important that reality is. And he goes on and says in verse 2, During supper the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, you say, what? You, you just got through talking about Jesus' love and now you skip as if nothing's happened and says, oh, by the way, Satan has put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to go betray him. If it was me, that would be my lead. I mean, that's the big thing here, right? Washing some feet that are going to get dirty again, that's not a real big deal, but it's a huge deal that Satan's getting ready, has just put it in the heart of Judas to go do what he's going to do. And if it was me, I would be so mobilized to make sure nothing bad happened. I want to go and find a way to stop Judas. I want a way to find, a, find the priests who are going to do something and stop it. I, I want to make the bad things not happen. And I tend to think that way, and I think a lot of us do. And yet for John, and for John because it's this way for Jesus, it's a mere interlude. He has a point to make. And he says, oh, by the way, while I'm getting ready to make my point, it so happens that Satan has already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And it's almost immaterial to him. Why? Well, look at the next verse. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his own hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. 
verse 1 and verse 3 says this is God's plan, not Satan's. Yes, Satan has, has this huge role in it. Satan does something. Evil does something. But it's evil that's on a leash. It's that this whole story is framed in the fact that this is the purpose of God to which Jesus is yielded. Jesus, verses 4 and 5, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I don't know if you've ever had your feet washed. Um, I have one time. It was a Grace Brethren foot washing uh, ceremony, and, and it is an, it's an awkward thing. I'm afraid I would have been a lot like Peter here. And, and as a kid, when I would hear this story, I would think, yeah, Peter, I know what you mean. I, I wouldn't want him to wash my feet either. And in an ironic way, that's actually a mark of pride, not humility. Because if I was humble, I would be yielded to his purpose. But because of my pride, I'm uncomfortable with you making over me. And yet, that was God's pleasure for Jesus to make over us. In washing Peter's feet, he's washing your feet and mine. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And this is typical Peter, right? The others are quietly going, we don't know what to say, so we'll just be quiet and let him do it. I, I should have known almost 60 years ago when I chose the name Peter as my confirmation name, that, that, was, that there was something divine in that. I, I didn't realize that I had that same mark as a seven-year-old as well as, as a 66-year-old that Peter does, that mark of uh, open mouth, insert foot, and chew vigorously. And that's what Peter does here. He's the same guy who said, no, Lord. Remember, <laughs> right after confessing that he was the Messiah, the next thing he says is, no, Lord, never. That's what he does here. He's basically telling him, no, you're not going to do what you think you're going to do. And Jesus very kindly says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter Oh, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands, my head. Please be sure to get under my nails. Uh, I don't want to miss anything you got here. But Jesus says to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. When Jesus says, he who is bathed needs only wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, he's referring to the fact that 11 out of the 12 disciples have already trusted in him. They've believed on him. 
They've put their hope in him in the same way that Old Testament saints put their hope in the coming Messiah. Now, Jesus hadn't died for them yet, and they didn't even fully understand it, even though he'd been telling them for quite a long time that it was going to happen. They still didn't really get that. Now, for us on this side of the cross, when he says, you're clean, we're in a room like this, and we got 300 people, and we say, you're clean, but not all of you, what it would refer to is anyone who has recognized, I'm a sinner, I deserve the judgment of God, but Jesus died for me. He was raised from the dead. And he offered eternal life to everybody who believes, and I'm one of them. That's what he means by those of you who have bathed. And when he says, but not all of you, what he's referring to in the context is Judas. If he were speaking in our midst, he would mean any of us who have not yet come to that place where we've recognized our sin or where we've accepted the fact that Christ really did pay for it all and that he really does offer you a gift of eternal life. That's what he's referring to. It's like this. If, If that's new for you, if you're a little unsure about that whole thing of eternal life, please be sure to read the Gospel of John this week on your own. Just just take it. You can read it right off your phone, uh, straight from the internet. Just put in the Gospel of John. It'll pop up. If, and if you have a Bible, read it there. Because you'll run across a verse like this, John 5, 24. It says it so plainly. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life notice it says she has eternal life not she might she has it if you've never understood that message and you understand it today and believe it it's life-changing mark my word And so that's why he says you don't have to bathe again. You don't have to believe that gospel again to be saved. You're saved. But when he says those who have bathed need only wash his feet, this is when it starts, and you're going to see this, this starts bringing us into this. Because Jesus is washing their feet and he's getting ready to tell us to do the same thing. What does that mean? What does it mean to wash your feet if you're already bathed? In a general sense, what it refers to is it's it's the process of being reminded that you are forgiven. It's the process of being reminded that you're cleansed. It's the process of as one of my friends says, preaching the gospel to yourself every day. It's, yes, I handled that badly. Yes, I did the thing I never should have done. But the God who saved me by grace through faith has given something to me called eternal life And I'm not living it right this minute, but Lord, forgive me. Lord, you have already created in me a clean heart. 
would you continually renew it to make me more like you? It's the process of repentance and enjoying the grace and the cleansing he's already given us. And in a broader sense, it's anything that anyone can do that helps you continue to be mobilized towards Christ. See, see what I mean a little bit here. He says, I'll, I'll go... Um, he says, and so when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so we say, okay, let's, right now, let's bring out the basins. And that's not meant to be a joke. I mean, we could do that. But his main point is not, let's institute a new church um, worship activity like communion or like baptism. We don't see the rest of the New Testament unfolding the importance of having foot washing services in the worship. I'm not saying anything's the matter with it, but that's not where he goes. In fact, the only other time it's mentioned is in 1 Timothy where it talks about a godly woman and it's talking about what she is like. And one of the things it says is she's, she's washed the feet of the saints. And what it means is she's served people. That, that's what Jesus is getting at. As Austin Stone Pastor Matt Carter points out in his commentary on John, Jesus commands more of an attitude than an action meaning his point is not so much that they institute a foot washing ceremony in the church, nothing's the matter with that as long as the purpose is to symbolize the real meaning rather what Jesus is doing is saying I want you to do to others what I am doing to you and with the attitude with which I'm doing it He's calling me and he's calling you to serve one another in humble ways marked by meeting needs, caring for others in such a way that focuses on them. So all sorts of kindnesses, laying our life aside in order to bless another for the sake of Christ. I, I got an email from a guy a couple of days ago, this guy and his wife, um, who when I first met him, um, he wouldn't pray out loud. Uh, he would have never seen himself in this role, but his email was, hey, John, my wife and I are meeting with a couple, and we're trying to encourage him in the Lord, and we're trying to address some issues in their life, and I'm wondering if you have any ideas about this particular thing. If you had asked this guy 20 years ago, he would have never been in that position. Why is he there? Well, because a lot of other people have washed his feet in the last 20-plus years. So now he's washing their feet. I think about somebody who takes my rough ideas and turns them into slides that help us follow visually where this message is going. Uh, and even when they get those slides at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. That's, it's a foot washing because what they're doing is they're taking their ability, their time, they're sacrificing for the purpose of what can we do that mobilizes learning. Why? Well, because someone like me doesn't need visuals. I'm more of an auditory guy. But one of our women's biblical counselors, for example, at a conference about four years ago, did a great seminar on a, a workshop on how people learn different ways. Some people learn visually, some people learn auditorially, some people learn other ways. 
And she said how important it is to provide instruction in a variety of ways. So when we put things on the screen, it's because some people, it helps them grab meaning. All of that is foot washing. I know a guy who plays guitar in the worship band. I talked to him this week. Now, he serves people in other ways, serves the Lord in other ways, has a job, has a family. I asked him this week, why does he do that? He said, well, I, I enjoy music, but if God can use me to help them see him and worship him, I want to do it. That's foot washing. I know a little girl who actively prays for a brother to know the Lord and who speaks to the Lord with her friends and who thanks him for the tiniest things, things I would never think to thank. She's washing feet. When she thanks Jesus, she's washing his feet. Kind of like in chapter 12 of John. One of our boys did not like being taken anywhere. He didn't like being taken to the nursery. If it weren't for Jeff Dahl and Sam Smith, he would be in maximum security prison somewhere. But those two guys had the magic touch, the form of foot washing for that particular child that helped contribute to the fact that now he goes to Bible studies by choice. I want you to take a look at some slides, something that happened yesterday, just as a little picture of what we're talking about. Everyday foot washers. These are folks who got together for the workday. Folks who just did a variety of things to try to make this place more comfortable, more beautiful, more welcoming, to keep it up so that it preserves its value and reduces any long-term um, costs that could go down. Um, these are just people washing my feet and your feet by the little things they do. I think about a woman who is a nurse in this congregation and who when I had heart surgery about 15 years ago happened to walk in at a time where it was very unsettling for some reason. I had never been unsettled in a surgical procedure before. This one was unsettling. And I didn't really want to see anybody except my wife. And I remember she walked in, and, and I knew her, and I know she's a delightful lady, but my first thought was, oh, no, I really didn't want anybody in here. And in the next, she was only in there about four minutes, but her presence was so calming, and it was so gentle that I felt like my feet had been washed. I feel like my blood pressure went down after that lady had been there. I don't know what it is, but I know this. He has appointed you to foot wash, and when you do it, it will be a small thing. Washing these feet was a small thing. They're going to get dirty the next day. We ought not put on ourselves this sense that I've got to knock it out of the park. It's a small thing. But you do it out of love rather than duty, and you do it because he has already done it for you. And we finish with this. Jesus says in 15 through 17, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And he finishes with these words that, that reflect what he also says in Matthew. We won't go there, but Matthew 7 at the end of the chapter and what his brother James says later. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That means God's not content for me to know what he has said or what he has done. He wants me to do it. And part of the way to do it is to remember that he did it for me. And he's not calling me to To save the world. He's calling me to write one note. He's calling me to hold one baby. He's calling me to listen to one friend. He's calling me to forgive one spouse. Every one of these is a reflection of the washing of the feet of your brothers and sisters, and in so doing, worshiping Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the fact that you are so humble, even though you are majestic. Humble enough to bathe our feet with water you created. And kind enough to invite us to be part of doing the same. So that we will have the joy, others will have the blessing, and you will have the glory. Thank you. Amen.